Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. The economic transformation of China that was launched by Deng Xiaoping's Reform and Opening Up program in 1978 has created what can only be described as a miracle of human development. More people have had their life chances improved more rapidly than at any other point in human history. Yet while China's development is remarkable in its scale, speed and reach, it still follows the basic social pattern of industrial development established over the past 200 years. This involves urbanization as subsistence farming is replaced with industrial techniques and former farm laborers move to the cities to find work. The China's success has been on the back of moving millions of people from the country to the city and putting them into largely export-focused manufacturing and assembly jobs. This requires large-scale construction of new urban areas, complete with roads, sewers, bridges, schools and the like. And all this in turn requires a massive increase in energy supplies to power, quite literally, industrial development. As part of this, China has set out on one of the great infrastructure building projects of modern times. And one of the most significant and controversial parts of this was the construction of the Three Gorges Dam, the world's largest hydroelectric power station. The dam displaced many hundreds of thousands of people and transformed the environment in a key part of China. What impact has the dam had on the lives of the people in the region? And what does that tell us about China's modernization and the kind of social challenges faced by a rapidly industrializing society? Joining me to talk about the Three Gorges Dam is Dr. Brooke Wilmson. Brooke is a research fellow in the Department of Social Inquiry here at the Shrove University and has been conducting research on the Three Gorges Dam area for nearly a decade. Welcome to the program, Brooke. Thanks, Nick. So let's start with some basics. Um, the dam is regarded as one of the great achievements of Chinese infrastructure building. So let's get a sense of this of its scale. You know, where is it? How big is it? And how long did it take to build? Okay, so the actual expanse of it is roughly the size of Singapore. It extends from a village called Sandal Ping, which is uh, quite close to Yichang City. Um, in Hubei province, and that extends right up to Chongqing, through Chongqing municipality to Chongqing city. It displaced roughly around 1.13 million people. It's actually been on the table for planning since the early 1900s, so that's obviously also affected the development of the region. Mao also wrote a poem about flooding the gorges area. So it's been something that's been on the cards for many decades at least. Well, 1989, the Canadian feasibility study was done. And then through the early 90s, the planning of that was developed. Um, And in 1997, the first closure of the dam occurred, which was when I first went there, when they first bypassed um, the region by cutting it off and um, allowing an area to be developed as part of the dam construction, which gradually expanded so that the Yangtze was still um, usable. So the bulk of the resettlement happened then between the the late 1990s and the early 2000s, and then construction actually only finally finished last year. Um, It was officially finished in 2009, but 2015 they were just finishing off the final ship lift, which um, helps the large ships get up the Yangtze. You mentioned the figure of 1.13 million um, which you see cited regularly. Mm. It's obviously the official figure. 
Do people accept that? I mean, the Chinese government stats across the board are always treated with some scepticism. That's the number that I always quote with an asterisk. Um, We've estimated that around up to about 6 million people in the end will have been displaced by the project for a whole lot of different reasons. One of the um, most pressing reasons at the moment that people being displaced in the aftermath of the dam is the increase in seismic activity through the region because of the pressure of the dam on what is very unstable geology. In the area I'm working, people are being resettled again after having been resettled for the dam. So only around 10,000 in the region that that I'm working in, but numbers around 4 million are being quoted for environmental reasons um, associated with the dam. So that figure is the sort of narrow figure around the people who are sort of moved out of towns that were flooded. It is, but I would argue as well that it's a political identification as well. You have people who come in and speculate when a dam is put on the table for construction because they know that being identified as a resettler, you have entitlements. So it's a very grey number. And I'm always surprised in where I've worked in resettlement planning that they actually do come up with a figure of people affected by a project, which it's impossible to draw a line around mm. who's affected and who isn't affected. So you've got people who have moved out of the places that are flooded, then you've got people who move on because of the consequences of That's having right. this enormous thing. And one of which is, as you said, seismic activity. Yeah. There's always been landslides through that area, but there's an increased incidence of landslides and earthquakes in the area um, associated with the dam, the scientists are saying. So one of the county towns that I work have been deemed as unstable. And this has affected the economic development as well. Just the construction of the new city began in one location, which was going to be the central economic hub, and then slowly that got moved three times because it's shown to be unsafe. County town is now this long, skinny, very difficult town to live in because there's no clear kind of central hub of activity. It's like a a great big strip mall city. That's right, yeah. Prior to the, the construction, these people whose lives have been sort of thrown up in the air... What were they doing? What kinds of walks of life did these people come from? I see the figures uh, flipped around a lot, but the early figures on the proportions of people that were affected said that the majority were rural dwellers. They were living on small farm holdings, so even before they lost their farmland to the dam, they had very uh, small amounts of land per capita compared to the rest of China. They were mostly subsistence farmers. There was some orange production, but that was stepped up under the um, resettlement plans, but mostly kind of producing for their own household and for the local market. You had a lot of state-owned enterprises through the region, big, dirty state-owned enterprises. In the case of China, that means literally big and dirty. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So when the government set about building this thing and moving people out of villages, lands that were being flooded. Did they compensate them? What was the sort of program? Compensation was provided to rural people for their farmland and also to urban people for their, their loss of housing. Because the land is owned by the collective, the compensation went to the collective, which was then passed on to individual households who had their contracts for farming the land. Housing was compensated at around 30% of the actual cost of reconstructing a home. It means the costs of the resettlement were um, very much externalised onto the population affected by it. So particularly um, immediately after resettlement, I saw the effects of this with people 
in debt, very high levels of debt, particularly to family and friends, in order to cover just the basic costs of building their new houses. Late in the 1990s, the government had a plan to reclaim the land that was higher up on the mountains uh, for farming. That was forested land and regarded as wasteland. Uh, They started doing this and then there was a massive flood in 1998 along the Yangtze and it killed several thousand people. Part of that, they decided, was because of this deforestation that had occurred. Then they changed the policy and they started to move people out of the Three Gorges region and that compensation plan of providing farmland was changed. They were provided money per the amount of reclaimed land that they reforested. That meant that people just pretty much lost their land Mm. and had to make do with what was left over. And was there much in the way of corruption? You hear stories in many parts of China where essentially you'll have arbitrary acquisition of land, house, that Mm. will then be put to use for government purposes and either defrauding owners or completely distorting the distribution of those resources and and then creating a lot of local friction and tension towards the party and, and yes. the kind of rules. Was that part of the Three Gorges or were they just, just badly treated? There were media reports of corruption and there was even one official sentenced to death for his involvement in corruption to do with the Three Gorges Dam. So they tried to stamp down on it. I suppose there's also the grey areas of, you know, people being put in charge of large amounts of money and the distribution of that created disharmony in the village and disagreements amongst people. When I was talking to a village, I said, you know, have they been following the plans for resettlement? Are you happy? Are you satisfied with what's going on? And he said, there's supposed to be quite a major road going past his house, according to the plans. And he said, does it look like a major road? And I said, no. And he said, where is the road? And I said, well, it goes up that hill over there. And he said, that's where the village head lives. Many levels of, of the term corruption, I yeah. suppose. And I guess any time there's compulsory acquisition of land and resettlement for anywhere, I mean, it happens in Australia when people are building new roads mm. through to you know Three Gorges Dam. There's a monetary compensation, which can be adequate or not, but at least you can get a roof above your head and the like. But of course, people who are put out kind of go, this is my home. This mm. isn't just a house. This is where memories are. And, and I guess in parts of China with spiritual connections to ancestors yes, and yes. the like, how did that sort of play out for people being displaced? In this project, I wasn't able to really explore that in any detail because of the sensitivity of the project. And I know a project I worked on, on in northern China on the Yellow River that was World Bank funded they were very upset about their family tombs having been submerged and they had been provided a certain amount of money to move their family tombs themselves. But of course, the distress in having to dig up family members and move them yourself meant that they didn't do it and then they were submerged. So in this case, I wasn't able to follow that, unfortunately. But it's doubtless out there. It would have been particularly for older people and they have a really strong attachment to place. You know, I ask them, how long have you lived here? And they say they don't know because it's generational. And the way in which they dealt with the loss of kind of cultural artefacts was really quite economic. It was to reconstruct temples that were ancient, all new and shiny, and call them the same name as the temple. And so it was a symbolic, I suppose, replacement of what was lost. And they've even built a glass tunnel out to one of the major archaeological sites underneath the water that you could walk out and see it on the side of the cliff. So kind of maintaining access to an archaeological area. It just so, happens to be underwater. It's yes. peculiar. But I guess, I guess there's also that tension in China between that for a long period of the 
Maoist time is there was this suspicion yes. of the past. The past yes. was to be banished. Yeah. It was the past and that traditional ways of doing things. That's what got us in the mess that we're in and modernisation mm. is, is a virtue. And, yes. And, uh, I saw that very clearly in the area. The kind of Maoist ideology was still very strong, particularly in the early 2000s when I went there. And even when I was there with this second survey, the pictures of Mao were still on the houses in the main rooms and they still subscribed to this idea that they had suffered for the greater good and that they'd done something important for the country. I think that's perhaps why there wasn't strong resistance to this project because this area hadn't been a focus of any sort of development and had been left out of what had been going on more broadly in China for so long and probably only under Mao when he moved people from the cities to the rural areas did they feel that they were part of something. So I suppose they kind of had a rebirth in that sense that they could do something for China and that yeah, that ideology certainly helped. Yeah, it's not all one way. It's a, it's a complex mix. And yeah. you've mentioned a few times the, the project that you've been doing there. Uh, I was wondering if you might dig into that a little bit bit mm-hmm. about how you know you first went there over a decade ago mm-hmm. um, or more yeah 97 um, 97 yeah nearly two decades <laughs> scary <laughs> more recently followed it up how you know how did you go about doing it and how have you seen the sort of lives of the people who've been resettled change and develop over that fairly considerable period of time? Well, it's been remarkable. When I went there in 1997, I was just as a student, so I saw the area before it was submerged. And then when I went back in 2003, they were up to filling the reservoir to the 153 metre mark. So it was very different from when I'd been there previously. People had been moved in the late 1990s. So it was within five years of their displacement. However, the submergence had happened within six months of the survey that I conducted there. So it was only very new that they'd lost, particularly for rural people, their main source of livelihood. Uh, So unsurprisingly at the time I found widespread impoverishment across a whole range of indicators that I measured with a survey that was based on the sustainable livelihoods approach, which was at that time big in development theory. Bit of a sort of standard measure. It was then, yeah. So I've had to continue with that even though it's been critiqued. It's the social sciences, everything gets critiqued. It does, yeah. So during that time, it was really just the kind of general story that you get from any development displacement is that there's link between displacement and impoverishment people really struggle to even get to a level that they were at before, which is often poor because Mm. they were already poor. They were taking on temporary employment in the construction of the towns and cities around them, so manual labour, using their compensation to buy things like small buses that they were using as transportation but they're not having any more money in order to maintain those and everybody was doing the same thing so there was a lot of people with buses and no employment. I suppose there was a lack of information and support on how to spend compensation money which was really a pittance anyway Mm. and a lot of the people I met were living off their compensation just to cover their basic needs. You've done quite a bit of work in resettlement generally beyond this. To what extent did you see similar patterns being played out in Three Gorges as as occurred in other places you've seen or or aware of, and to what extent did it differ? The difference here was the way in which the government was able to mobilise the provinces. This case is is unique 
in so many ways and my latest surveys have shown that people have actually been able to re-establish their livelihoods and improve their livelihoods so but you cannot say that this is indicative of, of what happens elsewhere early on it was but what the government did was they partnered rich provinces with the poor counties in the Three Gorges and they asked them to donate funds into the region. And those funds were things like the um, Beijing Fire Department would build a primary school. It was very specific and it developed the whole region very quickly. And then you had those same provincial governments working with the county departments in order to promote the area for enterprise investment. So you had big companies like Wahaha Water setting up subsidiary companies in the Three Gorges in order to provide employment for resettlers. It wasn't mandatory that they do this, but they were encouraged is always the term. And that's that top-down planning approach that certainly the Chinese Communist Party is pretty good at. Was there also a dimension of kind of nationalism in it all in the sense that here is this massive national project? Was that mobilised to some degree? or was Yes, it, and it... so much international scrutiny too. So there was a lot to lose in failing in this. I suppose national reputation was at stake and there was a lot of money poured into the region in order to make sure that the region flourished. And has it sort of settled now? The longitudinal study that I've done in following up the same 521 households found that generally incomes have increased enormously, 400%. But that's going on all over China Mm. over this time period. So the the trick for me was to work out whether this is something exceptional or this is something that's happening everywhere. Because a consultant that I interviewed in Beijing said to me, well, resettlement is easy to do in China. You just move people. If you just measure by income, you can say, well, resettlers are doing well, their incomes have gone up. But in this region, if we compared it even to the nearest urban centre that wasn't affected by the dam, at least directly, that catch-up was very fast and that incomes were growing on a level that was much faster than this nearby neighbour, um, which is regarded as quite a wealthy part of Hubei province. A lot of that was related to getting a job in an enterprise. This aim of the Chinese government to crank enterprise development in the area and to foster kind of new special economic zones and recreating and rebranding this part of uh, central China as the gateway to the west, building new freeways, building the first railway through the area, connecting everything up, has actually had a payoff for the resettlers that live in the area. But that said, there's been enormous outmigration of around 30% of the population that we worked with. In the villages now, you have mostly older people and young people, which is the story of rural China. Mm. So how sustainable these locations are in the long term is really the question. And resettlement in China is now seen as a tool of urbanisation. So they call it urbanisation resettlement, and they're moving people en masse in order to support and to hit the urbanisation target by 2020. It's a very communist way of approaching these sorts of things. That's all the time that we have, but uh, China's development will always be fascinating and a high-speed, large-scale, continual experiment in social engineering of the kind we've never seen before. Um, I look forward to having you back to discuss how things continue to develop um, in China. Uh, thanks for being part of the program, Brooke. Thanks, Nick. You can follow Brooke on Twitter at Brooke Wilmson. That's at B-R-O-O-K-E-W-I-L-M-S-E-N or me at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review and help us spread the word. Thanks for listening.